Till Death Do Us Part is a lighthearted and sometimes satirical true crime podcast where we present our dysfunctional married take on serious cases involving other dysfunctional relationships. We hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to the 80th episode of Till Death Do Us Part. I'm Daniel. And I'm Melissa. Bright and early. And we're back. We're back. We're back. She's almost 89% good. I'm feeling good. I'm on the mend. Like, seriously, this time, I am on the mend. I think she. I think you are this time. Yeah, and I'm going to take it easy, and I'm just going to keep healing, and um, my voice is probably a little wonky, but I am ready to tell you guys this case. I haven't asked you. Can you taste and smell fully now? Um, I can't taste sugar, oh. as weird as that is, but I guess that's good for that's my body good, type. That's a good thing, right? Yeah, I probably shouldn't be eating sugar, so... You know, that's okay. But no, I can smell again and I can taste hot sauce. So I'm good to go. That's it. As long as you can taste hot sauce. Absolutely. Daniel got some factoids for me. Okay. I know you want to hurry. Okay. You guys, this case that I'm about to tell you is crazy long and I didn't want to split it into two parts. So I gave Daniel a five minute time limit. (laughs) Five minute head start. (laughs) He's only got five minutes to do what he's going to do. All right. Criminologists estimate that at least 200,000 murders have gone unsolved since the 1960s. Wait, say that number again. 200,000. Murders have gone unsolved since the 60s. Oh, my gosh. 200,000? Okay, that sounds like a big number, but when you put it into perspective of, like, population and stuff, I guess that's not that much. It's still murders, though. It's still murders. Oh, my gosh. That's horrible. Stop murdering each other. (laughs) Yeah, and to follow that up, Thomas Hargrove A homicide archivist estimates that there are over 2,000 serial killers at large right now. Oh, I'm not leaving the house. According to his records, there are over 27,000 murders that aren't even in the FBI files. What? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Wait, and who's this guy? What does he do for a living? His name is Thomas Hargrove, and he's a homicide archivist. How do you get that job? I think you would love that. No, I wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Because no. you you would just come home and just look at me and I go, "What?" And you go, "I just, I don't I don't even know what to do anymore." Yeah, I think I would. <laughs> that would be one of the hardest jobs. Absolutely. Okay, this is fun. Since you're on the mend from not feeling good, uh-huh. <laughs> when people blow out candles on a birthday cake, there is a fourteen hundred percent increase in bacteria on the frosting as a result. And then we eat it. The amount of bacteria depends on how sick or drooly the birthday person is. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> Blow out the candles. <laughs> <laughs> how many three-year-old birthday Who parties? Wants cake? How many three-year-old birthday parties have we been to where the kid like spits all over the cake and we're like, yeah, we're good. We're oh, you good. know what? I, um, I ate yeah. yesterday, so I'm good. And yeah. most kids really shouldn't be drinking milk or eating dairy. And so they're constantly snotty and nasty. And then they 
blow their candles out. Gross. Uh, yeah. And then there's that. <laughs> and then there's that. Limit dairy. Public service announcement. <laughs> Public service. Good job. All right. A 28-year-old patient named Artyom Sidorkin mm-hmm. reportedly inhaled the seed of a fir tree, which had sprouted and grown in his lung. Doctors thought they were dealing with a tumor and were stunned when they made the discovery. A fir tree growing in his lungs? So the punchline is fir trees can grow in human lungs. Oh, gosh. Right? Now another thing to be afraid of. Let's go out to the forest, guys, and breathe the air. Yeah. Look at all the fir trees. (gasps) (laughs) What do they say on one of the popular podcasts? They say... Um, fresh air is for dead people. Amen. See. Don't go outside. <laughs> this one's actually pretty interesting. The bodies of those who have drowned in Lake Tahoe seldom decompose and seldom rise to the surface. It is also true of Lake Superior. The lakes are too cold for bacteria to live, so there is nothing to decompose the bodies. When they drown, the lungs fill up with water and the bodies sink. In other waters, bacteria would start decomposing the body like you know think of how many bodies they say are dumped outside of florida mm-hmm. but they always float so they right. find them that would make the body rise from the decomposition yes and so basically where the bacteria can't thrive the body stays sunk which would be lake tahoe or lake superior or anywhere around russia because <laughs> it's so cold <laughs> so imagine all the russian guys that cross vladimir putin <laughs> Where do they, they just go? disappear? They just throw them in. So they're imagine going scuba diving, and there's just this layer of bodies at the bottom of these ice cold waters. Oh, jeez! But what about like Dexter? He was in Florida, and he would cut up these bodies and drop them in the ocean, and they never rose to the surface. Actually, he would put them into like He'd put them in bags, though. Yeah, and he would dump them into like this um, crevice. Never mind. I answered my own question, and it wasn't real. And it Jeez, wasn't real. Melissa, yeah, this is get real. it together. It wasn't this, real. It was a fictional character. This is pure reality. Okay, you got I'm one f- more? Yeah, I'm going to finish up with this one. All right, do it. I want you guys to be uncomfortable. It is 100% possible for you to throw up poop. <gasps> Daniel. <laughs> it's, it's called feculent vomiting, and it can happen when there's a blockage in your intestines. Uh. You, you are welcome. <laughs> No, see? That's disgusting. (laughs) That's disgusting. Okay. That's a horrible way to end this, Daniel. (laughs) Oh, God, I'm nauseous now. Do you want me to follow up with something else? No, let's just get on to this case because it's going to make you want to throw up too. (laughs) Oh, good. Well, see, they're just, uh, I'm leading into it a little bit. Well, thank you for your factoids, darling. Yeah, you're welcome. Daniel. Melissa. You ready for my case? Yes. We're all on the edge of our seats waiting. (laughs) Let's do it. This is the case of Bill and Melanie McGuire. Okay. Now, 90% of my information came from the book To Have and to Kill by John Glatt. Cool. I did read a ton of articles, but... The one that I wanted to get my most information from and the one that I felt was more accurate was this book. So that's where I'm going with, okay? 
To have and to kill. Yes. Which is a great name for a podcast, actually. Damn it. I we should have uh, gone with that one, not the stupid married thing. Is it too late to switch? Yes, it's too late to switch. Okay. I'm going to give you all a heads up because this might be the most frustrating case I've ever covered. Now, yes. I've spent at least three to four weeks on this case, and I'm still frustrated by this case. I have never had so many questions that will never be answered. Oh, that's going to be fun for me. Yeah. So I apologize if I leave you all flustered and frustrated as well. And I apologize, Daniel, if I leave you wanting more. So should I not even bother asking questions? Because, you know. No, you can answer questions and I can tell you, you know, whether or not I have that answer. But this case is wild. All right. Absolutely wild. Okay. Now you got me. You piqued my interest. Okay. On Wednesday, May 5th, 2004, in the waters of Chesapeake Bay, Virginia, around 10 a.m., two recreational fishermen, Chris and Don, and Don's two young children, had pulled anchor near Fisherman Island, a private wildlife refuge, and they were on their way back towards the four man-made artificial islands that house the U.S. Route 13, officially known as the Lucius J. Kelman Jr. Bridge Tunnel, otherwise known as the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel, that connects the eastern shore of Virginia to Virginia Beach. Nice. Okay. These four man-made islands are the entrance and exit points for cars traveling under the Chesapeake Bay. Oh, I didn't realize they had one of those situations. Neither did I. That's cool. I've only traveled under the water when you're going from England to France. And they have the tunnel that with the train. Yeah. I did not know that we had something similar to that here in the United States. And maybe we're idiots. And so sorry about that. But I've never really traveled back east. Well, that's why. So I had no idea. So this stretch of the interstate is 17.6 miles long. Okay. And the areas where the cars are literally driving under the water act as shipping channels. So the boats are going over the areas that the cars are going under the water in these tunnels. They're really making use of this land. It is a feat of engineering. Yeah. It is amazing. Or... And it opened. I guess in, you got to hand it to them. It's a feat of engineering. It is. It really, really is. And <laughs> it's too early. Sorry. These four islands have rest areas. Well, like emergency rest areas where cars can pull off. Okay. Under the water. No. Oh. <laughs> like, I would want to get the hell out of on there the as island. quick as possible. I yes, absolutely. And you have to pay tolls. Sure. So there's a record of people who go. Over this okay, bridge. Gotcha. Okay, I see what you're doing got it, here. got it, got it. Yeah, you're setting it up. Okay. If you keep traveling north, you'll wind up in Maryland, Delaware, and New Jersey. Cool. I didn't realize that Virginia had this huge inlet of water, which is the Chesapeake Bay, and then yeah. the Atlantic Ocean is on the other side of this bridge. Yes. I felt really dumb doing this research, not ever realizing that this existed. And it's so cool. You're not dumb. It doesn't pertain to you because you don't go over there. No, I know. I know. Why would you study like the driving paths and routes in another state? I know. But it also proved to me that we have not traveled the U.S. as extensively as we should. 
So there you go. Okay. Let's fly Let's to the go. East Coast okay. and drive around in circles. Once they had passed Island 4, the young 12-year-old boy shouted, Hey, you just passed a suitcase floating in the water. Oh, boy. Turn around. Let's check it out. Hell, yeah. Who doesn't stop <laughs> and check out a floating suitcase in the water? You won't check out a floating suitcase anymore. And the kid is so cute. The kid thought that it might be packed full of pirate treasure. Well, that's what I would oh, think. I, I would love assume, 12-year-olds. I, I would assume them. airtight packs of either cocaine or cash. Yeah. Right? I, I'd go with cash. Hopefully the latter. The 21-foot fishing boat turned around, floating up alongside a medium-sized dark green suitcase. As the young boy tried to pull it on board, he realized it was extremely heavy. The two grown men were able to get the suitcase on board the boat. Mm. The young boy pulled down the zipper and exposed a thick black trash bag. Mm -hmm. Not thinking anything about it, this 12-year-old ripped open the bag, exposing a pale and hairy leg that had been severed from the knee down. See, why did they let the poor kid do all that work? That's what I was thinking. I would never let my kid open that suitcase. I have an answer. Why? They were just hammered drunk. Just fish. They're just drinking oh my God. beer all day. I didn't even think of and that. And they brought the 12-year-old along. And <laughs> no, I like... don't think so. They sounded like responsible parents. Okay. All right. So I don't believe that they were drinking. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Why else would you go fishing if you can't drink? Okay. <laughs> the young boy screamed, and his father noticed what he was screaming at. He grabbed the boy, and they all backed away from the horror of what they were seeing. Oh, boy. For minutes, they just stared. I watched an interview with Chris, and he said, like, they literally could not move. They just all stood there and stared at this part of a leg that they were looking at. Yeah, because they were expecting pirate treasure. And there was no odor coming from the bag, and the leg seemed to be fresh. Oh, man. Coming to their senses, the bag was closed and 911 was called. The call was connected to the Virginia Beach Police Dispatcher. At first, the dispatcher did not believe Chris and thought this was a prank call. Chris insisted that it was not and that they needed assistance. Chris was told to go back to Island 4 and wait for a police boat. They circled the island for half an hour with no help in sight. Chris called 911 again. He was then told to go to Island 2 and someone would be there to meet them. So they did, but no one was there. By this time, the case had been on the deck of his boat for almost an hour. Oh, I couldn't do that. And Chris was super pissed. Oh, my gosh. He called 911 again and told the dispatcher that they were going back to the Virginia Beach Marina and expected police to be there waiting for them. When Chris's boat finally docked at around noon... So it had been two hours since they had brought the dark green suitcase on board. And by this time, the bag had begun to leak fluid. The deck of the boat had turned a shade of pink. And these poor children were traumatized. Traumatized. You know I'd be like, hey, okay, fine. I'm going to pitch it back in the ocean. Yes. You guys figure it That's out. That's exactly what I said I was thinking that I would do. Is I'd be like, I'm throwing this back what in the, the ocean. What the hell is wrong with them? I don't know what happened. It must have just been I mean, miscommunication or something. But It sounded like he communicated really well. Right. But there was miscommunication on um, probably the part of the dispatcher to who needed to know what oh. was going on. 
A Virginia Beach Special Operations Marine Patrol police boat pulled alongside Chris's boat. Chris and Chris and Don just chucked that suitcase right into the police oh, hell boat. Yeah. I'd be like, here, <laughs> you guys have this. I'm so over you guys. Yeah. The suitcase was carried to the front bow and the police, wearing their signature black latex gloves, opened the case. And there were two legs in there. This wasn't just one leg. This was two legs. Nice. Fresh, it's like pristine some, legs. Someone is much shorter than they used to be. Sure. A homicide detective was notified and rushed down to the marina. Oh, now they're going to rush down to yeah, the marina. Yeah, now they're going down what there. What the hell? So the bag was opened again, and there's still legs <laughs> still, in there. Still a pair of there's legs. There's still a pair of hairy legs in there. By 1 o'clock, the medical examiner was called and brought down to the marina. jeez. Oh, <laughs> It's like they needed to make sure that these were legs. Like these were really legs in there. What? I know. Who would call 911 and go, hey, I got, I pulled a trunk or trunk. I pulled a suitcase out of the water and there's two chopped off legs in it. How would you like me to proceed? Right. Wouldn't everybody go rushing down there? And then there? they go, sir, don't, me- don't mess with us. This is 911. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's why I called. So what would you like me to do with them? Um, throw them overboard. <laughs> I, I don't believe you. Okay, <laughs> click. By one o'clock, the medical examiner was called and brought down to the marina. And you know what? Those damn legs were still in the no. suitcase. <laughs> so they need to bring somebody else to verify. I don't believe you. Let's bring the examiner. We're going to examine, make sure they are legs. <laughs> the suitcase was closed and taken to Norfolk, Virginia, for the autopsy. An hour later, the legs were removed from the suitcase. And the black trash bag with the yellow drawstrings. The legs obviously belonged to a male. They were hairy and had muscular calves. It could but be a woman. I, that's what I'm saying. Like, that's... I'm a little hairy right now. My legs could probably yeah, look it, like a man's. It depends on your, your origin. You yeah. could have some really hairy legs and feet and be a female. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And who's to say she wasn't a, you know... Like like to run. There's runners. Muscular calves. Yeah. Those two legs had been sawed through at the knee. Fun. Mm-hmm. Blood and hair samples were taken. After the examination, the suitcase and its contents, minus the legs, were taken to police headquarters for analysis. The bag itself was a dark green, medium-sized Kenneth Cole reaction rolling suitcase. Oh, my gosh. I have one of those. No, we don't. No. No. Inside the bag, they found two blue paper towels, a piece of blue painter's tape with a hair attached, and a price tag from Marshall's <laughs> with the UPC code to the store. Nice. And I can picture this in my head because I shop enough at Marshall's. So now the blue painter's tape was actually used to close up the bags. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Okay. The suitcase was in good condition and zero traces of blood or biological fluid were found on the bag. Isn't that interesting? You mean on the outside of the bag? Because it was leaking. Yeah, I know. These are the questions that I have. These are one of those questions. They mean other than from the legs? There was nothing. No biological fluid, no blood. Okay. Yes. Okay, question number one. Yeah. How is it leaking onto the boat if there was nothing in the suitcase? Question number one. Okay. 
The black trash bag had a slimy wet film coating it, and fingerprints were not found on this bag. What is, okay. Interesting. All right. Fingerprints were not found on anything. Well, yeah, I mean, if they use gloves. Right. But there was nothing on this bag. Yeah. Okay. But the question remained, whose legs were these? Right. Somebody wants them back. Mm Mm-hmm. I would. The next day, the Virginian plot broke the story with a little blip that said, A fisherman Wednesday found a suitcase containing human remains floating in the Chesapeake Bay. A preliminary investigation showed the remains to be that of a white male. Detectives are reviewing missing persons reports and are seeking the public's help in identifying the man. Anyone with information is asked to call crime solvers. That was it. That was the blip about legs being found. Or if anyone had their legs stolen, True. they should contact us because right. we have them. Which was interesting to me because it kind of reminded me of the plot of Jaws. Okay. And this is why. It was coming into the busy season in Virginia, the touristy season. Mm-hmm. And so it is believed that they kept the story short and concise so as not to scare the soon-to-be vacationers from coming. It tends to detract from um, shoregoers when there are body parts floating in the Right, especially when it's just legs. It's not a body. So where's the rest of the body? In a different suitcase. And it's found in a suitcase. Exactly. So it reminded me of Jaws because, remember, the mayor didn't want anyone to know that the little boy had been attacked by a shark. Gotcha. Because it was the beginning of their vacation season on Amity Island. Yes. So who was the bad guy in Jaws? It wasn't actually the shark. The shark was just doing what sharks do. The bad guy was the the mayor. Well, and the cop to the mayor was... Brody was not the bad guy. He was for the mayor because they wanted to silence him because it was going to stop vacationers. But the evil bad guy was the mayor. Let's get that straight. He was greedy. He was that bastard. I don't even remember his name. He's salaried. What the hell does he care? It's not (laughs) like he gets a cut of all of the commerce that's done, right? Oh, well. All right. Let's get back to this. On Tuesday, May 11th, a female graduate student was picking up trash on the Fisherman's Island Bird Sanctuary when she spotted a large dark green suitcase lying in the sand. (gasps) Oh, no. This was not the first time that she had actually seen this suitcase. What? She had noticed it the day before, but left it alone. See, that's what happens, the difference between being a child and growing up. You lose those childhood fantasies of finding treasure. Yeah, she did not believe that this was (laughs) pirate treasure. That's that's the problem (laughs) with uh, logic and maturity. You go... Yeah. First of all, I'm not lucky enough to find a suitcase of cash. So there's nothing else in it that I would want, so I'm not going to touch it. But today, of all days, her curiosity peaked. Nice. And she decided to take a closer look. Now, this was midday, so the temperature was in the high 70s. Ooh. And it had been in the high 70s for the previous couple of days. Oh, that's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. The woman opened the zipper slightly, and uh, an overwhelming stench of rotting flesh escaped. Uh, she opened it a bit further no. and caught a glimpse of a human shoulder, uh, or what turned out to be a human shoulder. Okay. Of course she did. The woman ran from the beach and called for help. As investigators arrived on the beach, they could immediately smell 
the familiar scent of decomposition. Oh, so it's icy. So because she called, they come right out. But the guys in the fishing boat called and they wouldn't even show up. <laughs> oh, okay. What the hell? The bag was a large 30-inch dark green Kenneth Cole reaction rolling suitcase. Mm-hmm. Dun, dun, dun. The suitcase was waterlogged and weighed about 70 to 80 pounds and appeared to have been lying on that beach for several days. The bag was loaded and taken to the medical examiner's office. When the bag was opened, they noticed that the contents were packaged in four separate trash bags, two large industrial black bags and two small kitchen bags with yellow drawstrings. Okay. One of the smaller trash bags had been placed over a man's head and upper chest area with his arms still attached. The other small trash bag was placed over the sawed-off section of the man's waist. Both bags meeting in the middle of his chest. Then the remains were placed inside the layered, larger trash bags. So they carefully cut up and stacked and placed all of the items so as to make it fit in this In those suitcases, yes. Mm -hmm. Because you're basically saying the top half of a man was in a suitcase. Yes. This had to have been the missing pieces of the legs that had been found days earlier, except the lower area and upper legs were still missing. There was a section still missing. The whole middle, middle area. Yes. This was the body of a white male. So they're going to slowly put this thing together like it's an archaeological dig. Yes. That's nice. A blood-stained hospital blanket was found around his head with the face still exposed. On the linen was a tag that read Property of HCSC, which was an Allentown, Pennsylvania-based medical supply company. What? (laughs) A a five-and-a-half-pound weight was found in the front pocket of the suitcase and another Marshall's tag. (laughs) Daniel's face right now. Okay, a Ah, five and a half pound weight. Mm -hmm. Okay. Did you know that you need four times the body weight to actually weigh down a body? Yes, unless the water's so cold and bacteria (laughs) can't grow, in which case that thing just goes down on its own. So putting a five and a half pound weight in a suitcase is not going to- That is not sufficient. Going to weigh down a suitcase filled with a body that is also decomposing and filling with gas. Right. That is going to eventually make its way to the surface. Just saying. Once again, there were zero traces of blood or fingerprints on this suitcase. Okay. Mm -hmm. The next day was the autopsy. The man appeared to be between the ages of 30 to 40. He had a healthy and muscular physique. His eyes were closed and he had a short, cropped, military-style haircut. Oh, And his face was all bloated. Well, yeah. Because it was all, everything was waterlogged. Right. Yes. And decomposing. So he was all bloated. The deceased man also had a bullet hole through the left side of his forehead. Ah. All in all, he appeared to have been shot three, possibly four times the head, the chest, and the abdomen. Okay. He had early stages of decomposition, discolored skin, skin slippage around the wounds. And his hair was falling off. Oh, that's the worst. You start to lose your hair? Yeah. Well, I mean, he is 30 to 40. Yeah. That's why I wear a wig. No, it was falling off because of decomposition. Right. 
He also had what is referred to as washerwomen's syndrome, what? which was severe wrinkling of the fingers. Well, yeah, because he's dead. Well, and he was in the, in the water. ocean water. Yes, I know. Yeah. I know. That was just part of the autopsy. Okay. And there was still very little sign of blood or biological fluid. They could barely get any blood out of so, the, the parts of his body that so he had. So he drained prior to being packaged. Good job, babe. Which means actually he was a lot lighter, at least going in the water, than normally because you contain an awful lot of fluid and blood and such. Yes, you contain 1.2 gallons to 1.5 gallons of blood. There you go. I did research. Okay. I didn't know that, but okay. Yeah. No, I knew you were going to ask me that question, actually. So, oh gosh, I'm so smart. Yeah, you are. (laughs) No, I'm not. (laughs) Just right now. By this time, the man's internal organs had begun falling out of the severed section of his body. Oh, boy. And there was no blood on the body or coming out with the organs. There was nothing. Okay. It was also a challenge to retrieve a blood sample from the cavity, which meant that the body had bled out before dismemberment. There it is. Good job, honey. The man showed no signs of strangulation, zero petechial hemorrhaging on the face or the eyes. I'm guessing the bullet holes didn't help, so he probably didn't need to be strangled. An x-ray was given to the body, and two thirty-eight caliber bullets were found one in the chest, and one in the abdomen. Neither of these shots were believed to have been fatal. Oh, okay. Okay. Probably one through the head didn't help, right? The fatal shots came from the bullet that that entered the man's forehead, through the skull, and out the back. Yes, that's hard to recover from. The second fatal bullet entered through the abdomen, through the lung, and out the back, leaving an exit wound called the halo of blood, which means he was still alive when this bullet entered his body. Oh, that's rough. Mm-hmm. But he was dead when he was dismembered because there was no bruising around the saw marks. Oh, God. Thank God. Right? And whoever did the sawing and dismembering had to have had some sort of medical and surgical knowledge. The cuts were too neat. Hmm. All right. The two bullets were removed from the body, and the bullet from the man's abdomen was discovered to be covered in a green fiber, like upholstery furniture. So it went through fiber and then brought some of those fibers in with it. Yes, and then stayed inside the body cavity. Mm -hmm. The man's fingerprints and DNA were put into a missing persons and DNA database. They were also run through a military database since the man was so physically fit and had a military style haircut. Sure. And it's Virginia. Virginia is a huge area for Navy and military. This is something like, it's like Washington, D.C. 98%. I'm making that number up. It's, It's very high. Are employed indirectly or directly by the U.S. government. In Virginia and Washington, D.C. Yeah, area. that whole area. Yeah, I could believe that like, for or, sure. And or because like even if you're a janitor, right, mm-hmm. you're employed by a company who only works for, say, only cleans government buildings. Mm-hmm. In other words, the ripple effect is almost every job out there is government job. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for your service. Yeah. So that would um, that would make sense. Investigators knew that there was another case out there, another suitcase. 
It was only a matter of time before it was found. Mm-hmm. On Monday, May 16th, 11 days after the first suitcase was found, the third and final case was found floating near the bridge to tunnel off the second island. Wow. This time, police were called to the location before the case was opened. Yeah, you think? (laughs) Oh, now they figured it out. (laughs) Robes were attached to the suitcase and dragged back to the marina. Now, this specific part of the suitcase did not wear well, meaning it had been in that water for a really long time. It was starting to grow things on it and Uh, very waterlogged and all that kind of stuff. I assume, too, like creatures knew something was in it. Uh Uh-huh. It's like putting a a crab trap with bait inside it. Like all of a sudden they're all around it and trying to get into it. Yeah, I'm sure. This was the missing small 26-inch dark green Kenneth Cole reaction rolling suitcase. This was the kind that you use as your carry-on, meaning the kind that we use to travel with, actually. Okay. Immediately, the police could smell what was inside that suitcase. It was just permeating. It was just coming out of that thing. Once again, the case was taken to the medical exam's office and opened. They didn't even open it on the dock or in the boats. They were like, no, we know what's in here. Let's just just take it already. The contents were wrapped in a small trash bag, then placed in two large black trash bags with the yellow drawstrings. So these were all the same bags is what I'm getting So at. everything was put together, assembled, placed in suitcases all at the same time. All at the same time. And then All dumped, using the same products. Probably dumped all at the same time. Yes. And they were wrapped with that blue painter's tape. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Inside was the missing midsection and upper legs. On the body was a pair of purple soiled and blood soaked men's fruit of the loom briefs. That's what I wear. I mean, they were purple. Like, this had to be a fun guy, right? I mean, who, yeah. Anyone who, wearing purple is just a fun guy. It means you're ready to party. Absolutely, that's what he that, was. That's what that tells yes. viewers. <laughs> Listeners? Listeners. Or view, oh, viewers view, of right, the underwear. Yes. Purple, mm-hmm. they see with, never mind. Yeah. This section was obviously more decomposed, and there was more skin slippage. Oh, boy. Three hairs were located on the briefs, and the same old Marshall's tag was found inside the suitcase. Zero fingerprints were found. Once again, there's no fingerprints. It's quite professional job. By Wednesday, May 19th, no DNA or fingerprint matches were found. This man was not in the military database either. Huh. Investigators decided to do a police sketch of the man and release it to the media. In the early morning hours of Friday the 21st, the sketch was released to the local morning news affiliates. Under this sketch of this bloated man, it read, Eyes brown, hair brown, 5 foot 10 inches to 6 feet tall, 185 to 210 pounds, military style haircut. Okay. That was the information they put out. Mm -hmm. At 8.25 a.m., a woman in Virginia just happened to glance at her television while getting dressed for work and saw a familiar face looking back at her. It was the face of her husband's best friend, the best man at their wedding. What? 39-year-old William McGuire from Woodbridge, New Jersey. He went by Bill. Oh, wow. Or Billy, if you were a family member. Oh, Billy. (laughs) I knew you were going to say that. 
Sorry. The woman first called Bill's sister and asked if Bill was still missing. Oh. She replied yes. Okay, so Bill is missing. She then went online and began comparing a recent photograph of Bill's to the police sketch. Even though the sketch was bloated, she knew it was Bill. She knew it was him. His teeth weren't perfectly straight, and he had a little red mark on the right side of his face. Just like a little, little um, a little red birthmark. Okay. She telephoned the Virginia Beach Crime Solvers hotline and told them that she believed the sketch to be that of William McGuire. He had been missing, or they hadn't heard from him, since the end of April. She was told to email a photograph of Bill to investigators, and a detective would be in touch. By late that afternoon, no one had contacted her. What? No one. By 5.30 p.m., her husband (laughs) and Bill's best friend returned home from work. She showed him the sketch. He then called the Virginia Beach homicide and was put through to a detective. I would be so pissed. I'd be like, what the hell is wrong with you guys? Are you this inept? Sorry. No, you know what? investigators. They're they're so busy. I I get that. And it's a lot of moving parts. So a lot of times the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. That's true. I don't. That's true. In most people's jobs, that is exactly what ends up happening. Communication is not the best in any sort of job. We expect law enforcement to work the way it is on TV. But they're not superhuman. They're just no, human. No, I, I know. Yeah. That's my point. Oh, okay. It's like, Sorry. There's no way it can work that efficiently. Right. Just isn't. It's made up of people. That's why it's sad because people look to the government like, well, the government this. Like, you know, the government is just someone who has a job and gets up and goes to work and comes home, right? They don't care. Sorry, don't get me started. <laughs> Well, after talking to the detective, a computer check on Bill was finally ran. Oh, good. Okay. Okay. Turned out that he had been charged with a felony offense in the early 80s while in the Navy and stationed at Norfolk, which means he had been fingerprinted So then in how Virginia. the hell, they, how come they couldn't figure that out? You know what? That's a great question. Question number two. So they they ran his fingerprints. They couldn't figure out who he right, was. Right, and they ran, ran and they, them through the military database and, and still didn't get anything. But he had been in the Navy. The detective asked that Bill's fingerprints be compared with those of the man's fingerprints in the suitcases. Bill's friends were asked to come down to police headquarters to view some photographs. After analyzing the gruesome photos, Sue was 85% certain that this was Bill. The nose, the mouth, the crooked teeth. It was Bill and that red spot that he had on his cheek, too. Mm-hmm. But her husband was only 60% sure because this well, was his best friend. He didn't okay, want well, to know that he was dead. I if think. it is looks like him and he's missing and this guy fits the description as a military haircut. Last time they saw him, did he have a military haircut? Yes, that's that was his right? style. So how yeah. could, I mean, I would think I'd be 100% sure, yeah. right, that it's... But you also don't want to believe that your best friend is dead. That's true. But where the hell do you think he went? I don't know. If he's missing and then he's found, you go, nope, can't be him. Doing more intel work on William McGuire, it was discovered that on April 30th, Bill's wife of only five years, 32-year-old Melanie McGuire, had filed a temporary restraining order against him, alleging violence. But she never filed a missing persons report. Gotcha. The next day, it was confirmed 
that the man in the suitcases was Bill McGuire. Hmm. Now it was time to go talk to the widow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think she has some splaining to do. Bill and Melanie met in the summer of 1994. They met while waiting tables. I believe it was at a Red Lobster. Oh, awesome. Mm-hmm. Delicious. I want, I want lobster. <laughs> Bill was 29 and Melanie was 21. Melanie had just graduated that spring from Rutgers University with a double major in statistics and psychology. She was very smart. Yeah. She was a smart chick. It'd be hard to mm-hmm. pull one over on her. Mm, probably. I mean, if she a, has a double major, so statistical stuff and then psychology on top of it all. Yeah. By 1994, Bill was a divorced veteran in the Navy and enrolled at Rutgers University to become a pharmacist. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. Bill and Melanie fell in love quickly. They shared a sarcastic sense of humor and a love of life. They were very similar in a lot of ways. When I was listening to interviews and reading interviews with their friends and family, they both had very salty kind of personalities and were sarcastic and humorous. And if they liked you, they liked you. And if they didn't like you, they definitely let you know that they did not like you. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. They were those type of Very people. Very black and white. Absolutely. Nothing in between. Yes. But the couple always seemed to be fighting. Like once they got past that initial honeymoon phase of dating, they were always fighting. Gotcha. And they both were very passionate about their arguments. Okay. And a quote from a friend said, when it was great, it was great. But when it was bad... It was really bad. Oh, gosh. Mm-hmm. Let the dysfunction just roll on over you. That had to be fun to be around, huh, at a party? Ugh. Hey, you want to go over to a barbecue at Bill and Melanie's? Yeah, no right. thanks. No, we have uh, diarrhea. <laughs> we both have diarrhea at the same time. I'm not going to be feeling good that night. In 1995, Melanie enrolled in the Charles E. Gregory School of Nursing in Old Bridge, New Jersey. In the summer of 1997, the couple actually moved in together. So they took it to the next level. So she did a double major in statistics and psychology, and now she's going to be a nurse? Then she went to nursing school. Oh, my gosh. I'm telling you, this girl's smart. Mm -hmm. Wow. All right. But remember, the person that cut up the body of Bill needed to have some sort of medical training background? Yes. Okay. I have that in the back of my mind. Okay. Yeah. All right. Just reminding you. Yeah. Well, I know where it's going. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I assume I, assume I know where it's you going. You assume 26-year-old Melanie graduated nursing school in 1999 and began working at Reproductive Medicine Associates. So that's people that help you have sex? No, they help you get pregnant. Gotcha. And on Sunday, June 6th of that same year... Bill and Melanie became man and wife. Melanie chose that moment to announce to everyone that she was pregnant at their big Catholic wedding. Wowzers. So I know I kind of skimmed through their relationship because there's so much to this case that it doesn't really matter that much. Just that you know that they had a very volatile and passionate relationship. So at the wedding... She gets up with front of everyone, mm-hmm. 
with the mic in her hand and goes, just want to tell you guys I'm pregnant at the Catholic wedding. Wow. And wore white. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Well. But some have speculated that she planned the pregnancy and was using fertility drugs behind Bill's back. It really wasn't a speculation. She actually told a lot of people that that's what she had done. Well, that's kind of weird. She was ready to have a baby. She didn't care if Bill was or not. Huh. On February 11th in the year 2000, Melanie gave birth to a baby boy. She and Bill were so excited to be parents. In July of that year, a doctor by the name of Bradley Miller was recruited to head the new gestational carrier program at Reproductive Medical Associates, and Melanie was handpicked to be his nurse. Nice. This new position came with a considerable raise and required Melanie to work very closely with this handsome and very married new doctor. Sure. In late 2000, Bill graduated with a degree in management from the New Jersey Institute of Technology. Bill was so well-liked that he was offered a job at the school as an adjunct professor and a programmer analyst, which meant that Bill actually worked as a troubleshooter for computers and PCs. So he's a computer guy. He's a computer guy. Or an IT guy. The IT crowd. Yes. If you don't know what we're talking about, we can't be friends. (laughs) Go to Netflix and put in the IT crowd. (laughs) It's a very, very worthwhile, important series. Yes, please. Have you tried turning it off and back on again? All the time. Yep. Solves a lot of problems. He really loved his new job. Bill really liked it, and he was making about $65,000 a year, which in today's day and age is over six figures. Mm, Yeah, okay, sure. So he's just, I mean, he's going to be a billionaire, clearly. You think? Yeah. By June of 2001, Melanie was pregnant again. But this time, according to colleagues of Melanie's, Bill was not happy about having another baby. He believed that one was good enough for them. Well, you got to have at least two because you got to replace yourself when you die. Is that why you have two? Yeah. I don't know. I think people that have one are way smarter than the rest of us. Otherwise, humans die off. Oh, that's true. At a 50% rate. We are dying off, aren't we? And on March 21st, Melanie gave birth to their second son. For the next three years, the family had their ups and their downs, like many married couples. But by the time Bill hit 39 years old, he was adamant that the couple needed to buy a house. His ultimate goal was to be a homeowner by the time he was 40. Like, all of a sudden, he had this new goal. Okay. They both have good jobs. They did. They had really good jobs. How, How could they not buy a house? It just wasn't on their radar yet. It just wasn't something they wanted to do. And then it seemed like right when he turned 39, he had this goal of buying a house by the time he was 40. Okay. Yeah. I guess. And he basically became obsessed with finding the family the perfect home. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So he put the whole buying a house thing way up too high on a pedestal. Right. And Melanie really wasn't into it. She really didn't care. Right. right. Yeah. She was happy. Well, I mean, she wasn't happy, but I mean, she was satisfied with what was happening. Yeah. Flush toilets. Right. Roof over your head. You know, running water. Well, Bill did. 
he found the perfect house for them. A large half a million dollar home with lots of land located in a rural area of New Jersey. Nice. I mean, that's a nice area, right? Yeah, most New Jersey's of, beautiful. Most of New well, Jersey. Well, most of New Jersey's beautiful. Yeah. They said that the areas that this all kind of took place is where the Sopranos were kind of based out of. That's what I picture. I yeah. base all my New Jersey experience from Sopranos. Because that's all reality, right? It is. And on Wednesday, April 28th at 3 p.m., Bill and Melanie McGuire were officially homeowners. And then everything was perfect, right? Sure. Because he got the perfect house and the perfect area. And this was, this was in 2004. Fun. Only seven days before Bill's legs were found in a dark green suitcase floating in the Chesapeake Bay, about 200 miles south of New Jersey. Mm-hmm. See, that should teach you to go run out and buy a new house. Because mm, you're going to die. You might lose your legs. and every other part of you. Yeah. Now, investigators had a hard time locating Melanie McGuire after Bill's body was identified, but they were finally able to track her down at her parents' home. Gotcha. So she ran to mommy and daddy. Okay. On Wednesday, May 26th, Melanie was informed of the death of her husband at the Barnegat Police Station. Her father had accompanied her there. She was crying and visibly upset, but she never asked what happened to Bill or how he died. And one of the investigators said that she was acting like she was crying, but that he never saw tears. And we hear that a lot, actually. Yeah. And that's a very telltale sign that something's not right. And And she never asked how he died or where they found him. Most investigators are trained pretty well. Yeah. They've seen it all. They really have. Oh and, my and gosh, get, I can't imagine and what And they, they get, see. obviously, everyone gets stuff wrong. Nobody's perfect. But they know. They're very well trained in how to tell if someone's lying because people have, you know, put out signs and tells. Right. right. So investigators thought she really wasn't that upset when they were telling her. Okay. Right. But right after the interview, she did call Bill's boss to inquire about Bill's life insurance. Sure. And then he told her that she needed to call human resources. That wasn't what he dealt with. Right. He passed that on. Hey, my husband's uh, showed up in the Bay all chopped up. So um, what do we got to do to process the life insurance? Yeah. And how much is it? Hmm. On June 2nd, Melanie gave her first official interview with homicide detectives. So the initial meeting was them just kind of meeting her and telling her that he had died and kind of seeing her reaction. Now, this was the official interview. Okay. She walked in to this interview surrounded by not only her divorce attorney, to which she had filed for a divorce the day before Melanie was told of Bill's death. But he was already dead at that point yeah he was already dead but the day before she was told that his body was found she filed for divorce gotcha and she also had brought along her newly hired criminal attorney Ooh. so she came in with two lawyers Hmm. melanie was asked about her and bill's marriage she replied that it was not a very happy one but they got a brand new house in joisey But she was telling them that he was just not a nice guy. Okay. That they didn't get along, that they fought a lot. Yeah. 
Investigators then asked about Bill's car. It still had not been located. Melanie told them that it was a 2002 blue Nissan Maxima with Pennsylvania plates. Bill was trying to avoid the higher New Jersey insurance premiums, so they used her aunt's address in Pennsylvania to get insurance, and and they did Pennsylvania license. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Interesting. She then told the investigators that they would more than likely find Bill's car in Atlantic City since Bill had a heavy gambling problem and liked the casinos there. Uh, sure. <laughs> so okay. Atlantic City is about 100 miles from Woodbridge, and it's almost two hours depending on traffic. Okay. Yeah, the East Coast is interesting. You can drive across like seven states. And we're still in Southern California. Oh, I know. It's it's <laughs> wild that people can go from state to state to state where it takes us forever yeah. to get to a different state. We have some friends that live in Bakersfield that have not been out of the state of California. That's how big California is. Yeah. And then I look at them and say, um, excuse me? You've what? You've never left California? Yeah, well, I mean, depending on traffic, if you drove from the Oregon border to the Mexico border, South San Diego, I mean, that's a long drive. It's a very long drive. No one wants to do that drive. That drive sucks. Okay, Melanie was then asked about the last time that she had seen Bill. She told them that in the early morning hours, the day after closing on the house, the couple began arguing about the new house. Bill telling Melanie that he had settled on the property so she could be closer to her family, even though he hated her family. (laughs) The couple were yelling back and forth, and she told Bill to go F himself. Sure. He grabbed her by the shoulders and put her against the wall. Bill told her she was a stupid, see you next Tuesday, and slapped her open hand across the face. As Bill was walking away, their two-year-old walked out of his room, and Melanie picked up the little boy and locked herself in the kid's bathroom. She heard Bill gathering his stuff. She heard him take a shower. And as he was walking out the front door, he told her that she and the kids would never see him again. And that was the last time she heard anything from Bill. And this is also the story that she was telling his family and his friends Right. When they would ask about Bill. Or sometimes she would just call and tell them that this is what Bill had done to her and that she hadn't seen him. Her side of it. Her side of it, yes. Obviously. So that's odd behavior for someone who just bought a house. Like you step into the house and then you're like, that's it, I'm leaving, I'm never coming back. When that should be such a celebratory time. Yeah, and if the whole house thing was his thing. Why would he be so quick to just flush all that down the toilet? And not move. Right. And you not stay and move into the house with his wife and children. Yeah. Like yeah. there was no nothing like, okay, what are we going to yeah. do to the house? Are we going to make it our own? Yeah. Did they just immediately start fighting? And then he goes, well, you'll never see me again. I'm out. Question number three. Yeah. Told you this was it's full weird. of questions. <laughs> Melanie was then asked if they owned a gun or hunting weapons, to which she answered no. She was also asked if they had a matching luggage set. She said no. Nope, they didn't have matching luggage. No. 
Because they can't stand each other, and why would they go on a vacation together? When asked about Bill's character, she told the investigators that he was not well-liked and pissed people off easily. Oh. Bill was also about to be fired and that he wasn't a friendly or happy person. So he bought a house and was about to be fired, knowingly. That's what she said. Huh. Okay. Investigators asked their final question. Could they search her storage locker? She said yes, and that was it. A short and sweet 20-minute interview, and then Melanie and her attorneys left. And then her attorneys charged her for it. Yeah, absolutely. Doesn't sound they like did. they really did much there, right? Other than make sure she didn't answer any questions that she didn't have to, I guess. I mean, it doesn't sound like they did much. They just asked her a few questions, and that was it. Why the hell would she bring a divorce attorney? That's just, what, a backup attorney, right? I guess so. I mean, she doesn't have to get divorced now. He's dead. True. Very true. She could get rid of the divorce attorney and save some money. (laughs) Right. But she had also filed a restraining order and those kind of things. So maybe she was expecting them to ask questions about the restraining order. Gotcha. And the divorce or, yeah. Okay. Investigators believed that Melanie's interview was a charade. And she became their prime suspect. Mm-hmm. After 20 minutes of talking to her, she was now the prime suspect. Yep. Later that night, the McGuire's three-story townhouse was inspected by a forensic team. Melanie was not informed since she had already moved out. The entire home was immaculately cleaned, and the walls were freshly painted white. The heavy scent of bleach lingered in the air. The three-person forensic team conducted a luminol search for any traces of blood, concentrating on the bathrooms. After several hours of testing, they found zero traces of blood. Huh. Now, they did get a couple of false luminol positives, but that was caused by the extreme bleaching of the area. Interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. So nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. The next day, June 3rd, the story broke, and soon the dismemberment of Bill McGuire became national news. That same morning, investigators were at Melanie's storage unit at Arthur's self-storage. It was packed with all their furniture and things from the apartment, or the townhouse. I call it an apartment. Yeah. Melanie was asked where Bill's stuff was. She pulled out a three-foot by two-foot blue plastic bin. Inside was all of Bill's personal belongings. That's it. Three by two plastic bin. Yes. So everything else was hers? Everything else was furniture and... Oh, Yeah, just belongings. Wow. But not his belongings. Asked where Bill's clothes were, she said that she had given them away to a friend that had helped her move, along with a weightlifting set. What was found in the suitcase, Daniel? Weights? A five and a half pound weight. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Melanie was shown a photo of one of the suitcases, and she said that maybe it was theirs, but (laughs) she wasn't 100% sure. I would know 100% (laughs) sure because, I mean, we have suitcases, so you'd know right away. Do you know what our luggage looks like? Yes. Oh, all right, cool. While interviewing the storage manager, an investigator was told about Melanie's 
second storage unit. The one she oh. never told them about. Oh, she conveniently forgot she to disclose forgot. that. She forgot. She forgot about the second storage unit. Oh, my gosh. <sighs> I just yeah. had a brain fart. Sorry, yeah. guys. When asked about the second storage unit, she did admit to it and gr- agreed to let them search it. In that unit, Bill's trifold leather wallet was found in a box with everything still in it. The investigator put it back and closed up the unit. Well, that's odd to find a wallet with everything in it. Yes. After going through Melanie's storage unit and not finding anything, the investigators traveled to Melanie's friend's house to look through Bill's clothing. Stacked along a wall, investigators saw 10 black trash bags filled with Bill's clothing. Very familiar black trash bags. Oh. With yellow drawstrings. Those bags were collected. Yeah, but that's not unusual to have. I mean, you can get those at the grocery store. That's true. So that in and of itself. They looked very similar to the black trash bags that Bill's body was put in. Yeah. Of course, if everyone shops at Walmart, then everyone's going to be buying the same bags, right? Right. So it's quite possible that you'd already have those, but... I'm just trying That's to true. play devil's advocate yeah, here. Yeah, I like it. The weightlifting set that Melanie had also given to this friend was not missing the five and a half pound weights. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this was not that set. Later that evening, investigators were told that Bill's car had been found at an impound lot in Atlantic City. It had been towed there on May 8th from the Flamingo Motel parking lot. Hmm. Thanks to video surveillance in the parking lot of the Flamingo Hotel, investigators learned that Bill's car was parked in the lot at 12.41 a.m. on April 30th and then towed away at 7.05 p.m. on May 8th. Okay. The footage was and still is too grainy to see who the driver was that got out of the blue Nissan Maxima and walked away. Hmm. So you can't tell what it is or who right. it is. or Just, You see a figure. If it's a female or male. Right. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Melanie gave her consent to Bill's car being forensically processed. By the third week of July, the new house had already been put back on the market and was sold with a $17,000 profit. Oh, my gosh. So that's... she turned around and yeah. she turned it around and put this it back on the market. This also was 2004. Which means what? So that was a significant real estate run-up in prices. Um, All across the nation. They peaked, yeah, more so in some areas than others, but for the most part, it was a rising tide lifts all boats situation. So, Ooh, look at you. Yeah, so like 2003 through 5-ish was a huge run-up in real estate prices, like a craze almost. Okay, so yeah, well, in good that, for you, Melanie. In that time, you could pretty much buy a house and then turn around and put it back on the market, and it would go up quite a bit. Okay. So, well, new evidence was found on the suitcases. They oh. found some brown hairs, animal hairs, and purple fibers. Okay. So forensically, investigators had zero evidence tying Melanie to the murder of Bill. They only had circumstantial, but it wasn't very strong circumstantial evidence. Yeah. So by March of 2005, a wiretap was placed on Melanie's phone. 
Okay. Because they were hoping to catch her saying something, yeah. obviously. After 500 hours of recorded phone conversations, it was apparent that Melanie talked in code with certain people, especially her parents. And they also discovered, shockingly, that Melanie had been having an affair no. for years. Shocking. Can you guess with who? Um, oh, yeah. The uh, doctor she is Ding, with. ding, ding. The very married doctor. The very married doctor. And handsome. Dr. Bradley Miller. Doctor. Come on down. <laughs> <laughs> Look at it the, was the, the big doctor head that, on Brad. The doctor that she works so closely with. I can see that, though. You know, some late nights with the old doctor. Mm. Dr. Bradley and Melanie had been having an affair for almost three years. There it is. There it since is. Since two weeks before the birth of her second son. Mm-hmm. So let me set this up for you guys. So hold on. What? Two weeks before the birth of her sister, she was about to pop. That, I'm, that's what and I'm setting it, up oh, for I'm you. Sorry. Okay. Okay. All right. Go get All everything. Right. Set up the room. Go okay. Ahead. All right. Set this up for you. Uh-huh. She's got this huge belly, right? Sure. She's very petite. She's pretty. Yeah. Dark, curly hair. She knew how to carry herself. She only put on eight pounds. Yes. Just the so she's of the wearing baby. her scrubs and she's right. got her big old belly. And she walks into Dr. Bradley's office and she sits down and it's her last day. And she goes, oh, gosh, my shoulders are so tense. Uh huh. And Dr. Bradley offers to rub her shoulders. Yeah. And as he's rubbing her shoulders, he must trip and falls into her vagina. Oh. And starts having oral sex with Melanie at Eight and a half months pregnant. There it is. In their office. Okay. And then she returns the favor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what? Maybe that started labor. Maybe he was helping to start labor. Well, that is his specialty, right? Yeah. And that's what friends do, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. He was just being a good friend. So yeah, I called- So a part of his body accidentally encountered a part of her body. Right. And then gave her some then, oral aerobics. And then they both- Tripped and swapped places. <laughs> no, I can see where you know. I can see where you could view this as something else, but I it pure, it was pure accidental. Yes, that's what I'm believing. Mm-hmm. Yes. After returning from her maternity leave, Doctor Bradley and Melanie began their passionate affair. Mm. So they weren't slipping onto each other's privates anymore. Like this was actually done on they purpose. Were, they were aiming for them. Yes. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Okay. They purchased cell phones with prepaid minutes. Smart. And would call each other daily with an average of 18 phone calls a day. And they would sneak away to sleazy motels. See, that's my thing is I drive by sleazy motels all the time. <laughs> and I think who the hell wants to stay in those? Mm-hmm. Dr. Bradley and Melanie. All of these cases, all mm-hmm. of these people, like, oh, then yeah. they slipped away into a sleazy motel. I'm like, right. all right, I can see why people buy sleazy motels. Yeah, even uh, Candy Montgomery. Remember see? that one? Yeah. They were so banging at sleazy motels, there's too. There's money to be made, folks. You can purchase one of them sleazy motels. There is. Maybe we should think about that in downtown Bakersfield. Yeah, we could. Buy a sleazy motel. We could open the next Bates Motel. Let's do it. 
You didn't even laugh at my joke. I did. I just said, let's do it. I said the Bates Motel. I know. (laughs) And by June of 2003, after Bradley's wife had given birth to twins. Twins. So he's still banging his wife. Gross. Both were planning on leaving their spouses and running away together. All right. So he's going to leave his wife with newborn twins. You, You sound like a... Swell guy there, Bradley. Brad. Other coworkers knew something was going on between them. It was obvious. They Uh, started kind of not hiding their affair and their flirtatious manner. Right. And and Brad, I'm going to call him Brad. He doesn't deserve to be called doctor anymore. No. Okay, so Brad would go and get her lunch. And so she'd have lunch waiting for her. And, you know, he's just very gentle and... Nice to her, I guess. Yeah. People know. Mm-hmm. Oh, they do. They can smell it. <laughs> they could smell it. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, they could sniff it out, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, what does an affair equal, Daniel? What does it usually equal when we're dealing with cases like this? What does it kind of give you? A reason to possibly get rid of the competition or not the competition, but the uh, the person in the way. It gives you motive. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Dr. Miller was brought in for questioning. He became a suspect. Oh, mm-hmm. I didn't think about that. Mm-hmm. After interviewing Brad and his wife, it was determined that he did not have anything to do with Bill's murder. Oh. But Brad was offered immunity from any subsequent prosecution as long as he supplied truthful information against Melanie. Oh, and, you know, wear a wire and agree to have his phone calls recorded with Melanie. Yeah. So Brad agreed. Oh. Mm-hmm. He yeah, was going to so turn. He doesn't care. No, he's going to turn on that, on this girl. See, yeah. Yeah. It's called self-preservation. Oh, absolutely. That's what that is. I love that word. Because everyone can talk a, big, talk a big game until they think they might have something to lose. Right. And then all of a sudden, they don't care about anyone else. Mm. The police did not receive any useful information from Brad's conversations with Melanie until a phone call on May 31st. Melanie still denied everything, but she did admit to moving Bill's car into the Flamingo parking lot. That's weird. Why would you move a car to Atlantic City in a casino parking lot? All right. Well, this is what she says. This Which is a quote. Would you say 100 miles away? Yeah, something it was 100 like that. Miles away. Right. Mm-hmm. The night that he left, I went down to Atlantic City to look for him, found his car, moved his car just out of spite. <laughs> so the video that they have is me moving his car. Oh. Yes. Okay. But okay. here's the thing she Whoa. had two kids at home. What'd she do with those kids? Right. And it's Atlantic City. How did she just find his car in a random area zero and chance. then move it? There's zero chance of that. Okay. No All way. right. But even while trying to get his mistress to admit to killing her husband, Brad was still banging her anytime he could. Okay, I have a question. Yes. Does Brad's wife know that Brad's banging Melanie? I think Brad's wife knows now because she was well, interviewed by investigators and gave his alibi or helped with his alibi. Okay. So she has newborns at home. Twins. Twins. Twinsies. And another and an older child. So they had three together. And knows that there's a pretty good chance that Brad is still nailing her 
Mel, what's her name? Melanie on the side. Yeah. And I could not find out very much information about Brad's wife. And I didn't really want to bring her into this because no, she's just an inno- just, she's just, just innocent in all of this. But hmm. I think she stayed by his side. Uh-huh. You know why? Because she had three kids. Because she has three kids and he's the doctor. Yeah, but a doctor doesn't make you a good person. Doesn't matter. It's the potential. Okay. You help him be successful, mm-hmm. and then you divorce him and take him for everything. Yeah, but didn't they try that? What, who was oh, like Dan and Betty Broderick? Like I, I know, you know, it, that one didn't quite work out. Right. No, that didn't. But quite. but that that's the exception. <laughs> that's the exception yeah, to the rule. This is yeah. This okay. is different. So let's talk about the evidence that they found in Bill's Maxima. In the glove box of the Maxima, Mm -hmm. they found a vial filled with pink liquid. Oh. They tested the liquid, and it was chloral hydrate, which is a sedative, also known as a Mickey. You know, they used to say, oh, I was slipped a Mickey. Oh. Yeah. yeah, I didn't know what that meant. That's chloral hydrate, which is, like I said, it's a sedative. Mickey's, the alcohol. Oh, the beer? Yeah, like a Mickey. it's actually a... Uh, it's actually a drug. Like, I was slipped a Mickey. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. I had no idea. The carpets in Bill's car were forensically vacuumed. That is a very <laughs> good vacuum cleaner, I'm assuming. On the driver and passenger side, very small microscopic particles of skin and flesh were found. This is now referred to... Because of this case, yeah, as human sawdust. Nice. It was Bill's nuclear DNA, which means that whoever sawed his body up transferred Bill's sawdust on the bottom of their shoes into his car. Isn't that wild? Um, okay. Except there wouldn't be dust because he's alive, so it'd be gooey. So wouldn't it be just like splatter? No, he was dead when they were sawing him up. So they're saying there's like little tiny particles. There's little microscopic particles that fly off from that saw. You want to hear a funny factoid real quick? Yeah. They say that in like a subway station, 15% of the air that you breathe is actually human skin. Uh, Yeah. I'm not surprised. Constantly, all those people and stuff and people moving around. Well, and that's what people are asking is, was this just like dead skin cells? Well, that was, yeah, that was going to be my next question. But no, it was deeper than that. Okay. It was into the flesh. They found meat. Oh, okay. Meat. All right. Yeah. It was, yeah. So it's like we're borderline with the, remember, this used to be a headline for a while in the news, um, pink slime. Oh, from chicken nuggets? Instead of ground beef. What they were doing is they were selling basically just the goo. Oh, no. From no, processing no. meat. So it wasn't, it was technically protein, but it wasn't really meat. No, this was like little so, tiny particles. I believe they found 39 pieces oh, of flesh and meat. Gotcha. Little, little bits. All that stuff. Fun. Okay. Mm-hmm. On Wednesday, April 28th of 2004, the same day the McGuire's closed on their new home, A vial of chloral hydrate was purchased at a Walgreens at 8.32 a.m., about a mile and a half from the preschool Melanie's boys attended. It was paid for in cash. 
The prescription was written on a pad belonging to Dr. Miller's office and was signed by Dr. Bradley Miller. But the signature did not match Dr. Miller's signature. It was a forgery. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. So who else had access to the prescription pad? Probably someone that worked very close to Dr. Miller. Yep. Mm Mm-hmm. A forensic analyst spent weeks analyzing the black trash bags and comparing the ones found with Bill's dismembered body to those found with Bill's clothes in them. They were a perfect match. Sure. And they were saying they were chemically consistent. Okay. It was determined that the bags were sliced by the same slightly warped blade which leaves a very distinctive tool mark on each perforated edge. As the blade dulls, the marks change. These bags were cut within seconds of each other, and each bag had a tiny bump on an upper edge. Interesting. But Bill was killed with a gun, right? That's what they implied, right? All the gunshot wounds? So where's the gun? Who had the gun? I don't know. It's probably in Chesapeake Bay, I assume. Well, it turns out that Melanie had purchased a gun two days before Bill was seen or heard from last. Only the gun was not purchased in New Jersey. It was purchased just outside of Easton, Pennsylvania, at John's Gun and Tackle Room. Sure. That sounded more Texan than New Jersey. Yeah. Okay. Jersey's more- No more voices for me. Jersey's more Guido- So all you need to purchase a gun in Pennsylvania is a state driver's license and no record. And you can walk out with a gun that same day. Okay. Fair enough. Melanie bought a Taurus 85 small frame 38 special with five rounds for $270 cash and a box of Ultra Max wad cutter bullets for $9.95. Wad cutter bullets are mainly used for target practice. I was going to say. Yeah, like they have a flat head. Yep. They don't have a round head. Not a round head, flat head. (laughs) I didn't know that. I learned that. I like learning things, obviously. Now, these were the same size and types of bullets found in Bill's body. All right. There's another piece of circumstantial evidence. So Bill was shot with a Target load bullet? Yes. Interesting. The McGuire's home computer was analyzed. Okay. Starting on April 11th, searches were found for things like undetectable poisons, suicide, instant poisons, and gun laws in Pennsylvania. On April 18th, someone Googled how to commit murder. Oh, that's oh my fun. God. People are so dumb. I mean, who doesn't Google that, right? <laughs> and the same day the gun was purchased, someone looked up chloral hydrate and searched on the Walgreens store locator. That's different than oral hydrate. Y- yeah. We're just, if you look we're it just up, doing chloral. it's a completely different page. Yeah. yeah. Bill's remains were never tested for chloral hydrate, and Melanie had Bill's body cremated before New Jersey took over the case. Of course she did. Yeah. With enough circumstantial evidence, the state charged Melanie McGuire with first-degree murder. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, right? I I would say, I think we're good. I think (laughs) we're good, guys. Let's go for it. I would have charged her, too. Yes. Heck, yeah. 
On June 2nd, 2005, 32-year-old Melanie was arrested outside of her children's daycare center. Fun. Melanie pled not guilty. And we did, they went through a lot of like bail hearings and she was able to make bail. So she was out, but her kids were given to Bill's sister. And then she was fighting back for custody of her kids. Like it, there's all this other stuff that happened. Okay. Okay. And then letters started coming to Bill's sister trying to implicate her for the murder of Bill. There's all this extra wow. stuff that happened that I could have gone into, but this would have been you know, two or three episodes. Right. So if you're really interested in this case, go read this book. It's fascinating. But I'm not going to get into that area of it. The trial began on Monday, March 5th, 2007, two years and 10 months after the first suitcase was found. So we're almost three years. They were trying to gather the circumstantial evidence. Yeah. Trial dates and cancellations and just all these kind of things happened. So... Just think if the guys and the kid in the boat weren't really intent on trying to get the cops' attention. Mm. Like, what if they just gave up when the cops didn't show up? They're like, you know what? Screw it. Toss it back over. Let's go. And then it wouldn't have started everything? No. Then, then probably would have. Well, the other suitcases were yeah, found. Yeah, maybe. It's hard to say. So we're going to jump right into what the state believes happened to Bill. So I'm going to take you through that entire day. Okay. On the morning of Wednesday, April 28, 2004, Melanie dropped the boys off at their preschool and headed to Walgreens to pick up the prescription for chloral hydrate. So they are saying that, that his murder was premeditated. Right. This was not a crime of passion. Especially since she allegedly forged the prescription. Right. She called Dr. Bradley on their secret phones and told him that she and Bill were going to the lawyer's office to check on the status of the closing on the home, telling Bradley that she did not believe the closing would occur that day. Around 2 p.m., Melanie and Bill drove to the attorney's office. The couple ended up signing the closing documents. The house in Asbury, New Jersey was now theirs. Oh, okay. Okay. A few minutes after closing, she called Brad and told him that they had closed on the house and she sounded upset, telling Brad that she didn't think it would happen. And then she just started signing papers. Oh. Okay, but you have to get it notarized too, girl. Like, you got to give fingerprints and stuff. So you knew what was happening. You're not that dumb. Right. Brad became very angry and yelled at Melanie. Oh. telling her to go back into the office and rip up those papers, reminding her that if she ultimately wanted a divorce, why would she buy a half a million dollar house with Bill? It just didn't make any sense. Yeah. Okay, but Bill's next to her, by the way, in the car as she's talking to Brad. Yeah, how, do, how does that work? <laughs> I don't know. People have some big old balls, man. Well, he, I mean, she couldn't talk to him like that. She couldn't have a... That conversation. And then <laughs> it didn't make wouldn't, any sense. Wouldn't, wouldn't Bill go, where the hell did you get that phone? Right? Because this is a different phone. That's what I'm telling you. There's so many questions in this case. A lot of this circumstantial evidence, or it just doesn't make sense. Because we're sitting here as a married couple. I know that I would be listening to your phone call just like you would be listening to my phone call. Unless you have the volume way down. Or, you know, there's other outside noise. 
You can hear people's conversation. Yeah, but and how are you telling your lover that I didn't know I was signing these papers? That's weird. I know. So later that afternoon, she called Brad again from the car. He could hear Bill talking on his phone. She told him that they were on their way home and not to worry. Everything would be fine. Wait, so Brad could hear Bill? Which talking means on they his were phone. all they're in the car together. Yeah. And Bill wasn't suspicious as to why Melanie is talking to some guy on the phone. I know. That's, That's what I'm that saying. Something doesn't make sense. It, but okay. it doesn't. At 5.44 p.m., Bill called a friend and talked to him for 14 minutes. At 5.59 p.m., Bill called another good friend and they talked for around 10 minutes. That phone call was the last time anybody but Melanie and possibly the killer would ever talk to Bill again. Now, this is all speculation. Okay. okay. Right. All right. Around 6 p.m., prosecutors believe that Bill opened a bottle of red wine to celebrate. Somehow, Melanie was able to put the powerful sedative into his glass of wine. Red, red wine. <laughs> While the children played upstairs, Bill and Melanie sat on the couch, and she waited for the chloral hydrate to take effect. Sure. At 7.09 p.m., Bill received a call on his BlackBerry from another friend. It went unanswered. This same friend then called the McGuire's landline one minute later. Melanie answered that phone. He congratulated her on the house, but never heard a response. Just silence. Hey, congratulations, you guys get in the house. That's so awesome. Crickets. Hello? Crickets. Hello? Yeah, isn't that weird? What a weird chick. And, and what? She just is sitting there just... <gasps> yeah. Just breathing into she the She didn't phone. even say like, oh, I can't talk right now, but thank you. You know, just something super fake. No, can, just silence. I can hear you breathing, Melanie. A little after 8 p.m., Bradley called Melanie and they had a 15-minute conversation. She told him that Bill was asleep on the couch, and when he woke up, they would be discussing the house, mm -hmm. promising to finally bring up the subject of divorce, telling Brad that she would call him in the morning and tell him Bill's reaction. Brad phoned Melanie three times the next day, which was Thursday, April 29th, between the hours of 5 a.m. to around 8 a.m. That's too early. Well, he was on his way to the gym. He had a spin class. Oh, God. He's a dude that spins. He's fit. I, I mean, he's he a, was, he's he was a, attractive. Yeah, he's a doctor and such. I guess so. Reproductive doctor. Prosecutors believe that at 6.17 a.m., Melanie emailed Bill's boss from Bill's BlackBerry, telling him that Bill would be out sick that day. But she had the email address wrong, and there was a message from the system saying that it was undeliverable. Oh, I hate that. Yeah, that sucks. As Bill lay unconscious on the couch, Melanie got the two boys ready for preschool and then dropped them off at 8.30 a.m. What's wrong with Dad? Oh, he's fine. Yeah, shh. He's, he's sleeping. He's just going to keep Daddy sleep. sleeping for 40 hours. Before 9 a.m., she called into work and told them she would not be in that day. She then called Brad and told him that Bill had left. They got into an argument over the house. It turned physical, hiding in the bathroom with their youngest son for half an hour, 
only coming out when she heard the front door slam. She then asked Brad to write her a prescription for Xanax. What? I mean, yeah, of course you do that. Well, yeah. I mean, if you're a fair person is a doctor who can write prescriptions, may as well make use of it, right? Might as well get some Xannies. She called a few more people and told them that she and her husband had gotten into a fight and that he had walked out of the house and she had not heard from him, announcing that she wanted a divorce. The people that she called were not even really good friends. One of them was her son's speech therapist. Oh, gosh. And she's told her this whole sob story and that she wants a divorce. What if you got a phone call like tomorrow from some random person that you kind of sort of know and you have in your in your contact list? Mm-hmm. And they're like, hey, yeah, so um, me and Steve um, we <laughs> got in kind of a fight. And yeah, I know we just moved into the new house yesterday, but um, he left. But here's the he problem went. with that scenario is I don't answer my phone. Okay, well, this is back when people right. answered their okay. phones. And probably my next response would be like, oh, my God, I ate something really bad. Today. I got, can I call you back? Yeah, I gotta, and then never call her again. I got to poop. Yeah. <laughs> now we get into the interesting part. Oh, okay, good. The state believes that Melanie had an accomplice. Yeah, she had a sidekick. Side piece. Cod piece. <laughs> While Bill lay unconscious on the couch... She put a green throw pillow over his face, or the accomplice did this, mm-hmm. and shot him in the forehead using the pillow to muffle the sound. And that's how the interesting fibers The green upholstery gotcha. fiber, yes. Okay. She then shot him three more times, once in his lower abdomen and two more times in his chest, while he's on the couch in their home. But the green fiber didn't match their couch. Oh, but it was a pillow. But he's laying on their couch. Yeah. And there wasn't any blood or gunshot residue. So, yeah, that, I don't know. Right? I can't think that, that she would want to shoot him right in the middle of their house. Because uh, yes. so many things could go sideways. Uh, exactly. Are you really thinking clearly when you decide to shoot someone? You're allegedly okay but it sounds like if this really happened this was premeditated she had planned this out well of course so she had chosen the couch yeah but their couch didn't have anything on it okay this is where it's getting crazy guys just stay with me melanie and or her accomplice then prepared the larger of the two bathrooms which was on the second floor they prepared it to dismember bill's body In the house. Drop cloths were hung around the shower stall to catch the blood splatter, and then they blocked up the drain to prevent any incriminating biological evidence from getting trapped in the drain. So they dextered it. Yes. Bill was undressed and left only in those purple briefs. His 200-pound body was then moved upstairs into the shower stall. Huh. Melanie was very petite. She okay. didn't weigh anything over 110 pounds, and she was five foot four. All right. She could not have pulled him up those stairs unless she had an accomplice. Probably not. Bill was too big to lie flat in the shower, so they placed him in a sitting position with his knees bent so the shower door would close. Then Melanie or her accomplice, using a short-bladed reciprocating power saw. There it is got in the shower and were able to close the door 
and began cutting through Bill's lower left knee from front to back. The saw easily cut through the femur bone, but could not cut through the last of the bloody flesh. So Melanie or her accomplice used a sharp beveled edge knife to cut through the remaining flesh. Okay, but picture this, you guys. You're in a shower stall. There's a shower door. It all has to be closed up. Bill is 200 pounds, over six feet tall. Melanie or her accomplice is fitting in the shower stall with the body in a saw. Yeah, that's that's kind of a stretch. Okay. I mean, I, I, can, I guess it's sort of doable. The right lower leg was cut off in the same manner. Okay, so I'm thinking dangerous. Okay, reciprocating saw. You're just going at it, right? Just cutting his legs off. Yeah. How do you not, how does it not slip and hit your own leg? No. And they're saying she was wearing shoes in the stall while she's cutting up the body. Okay. So I know what a reciprocating saw is. I have a couple of them. Okay. I can see where it's not going to slip. It's, they're very easy to use, but there's going to be a lot of stuff flung off of it. That's what I mean. It's going to be everywhere. I don't care what you're cutting through. But if you're cutting through something like that, like meat and bone, there's going to be stuff everywhere. Right. And they they couldn't even find anything in the vents or on the ceiling. There yeah. was nothing. Although you can control it depending on what kind of saw it is. You could slow the saw down so it's not flinging stuff everywhere. But I doubt she was of the right mind to do that, assuming it was her. Or her accomplice. Or her accomplice. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to picture it. So now there's more room in the shower because those legs are gone. Gotcha. So they're whittling it down like they're taking a tree down. Right. So Melanie or her accomplice pushed on the top of Bill's head and he slid into a flat position. And they kept the legs in the shower with them to kind of bleed out. All right. She then sawed through his mid backbone and sliced through his organs and flesh with the knife. Ugh. After letting the pieces bleed out, they began putting Bill into the black trash bags and closing them up with blue painter's tape. Prosecutors believe that the parcels were then surrounded with bags of ice. Oh, okay. To keep them fresh. Sure. Then began the task of cleaning up all the evidence. How do you clean that up? Yeah, I if mean, there's it, a gallon and a half of blood in the average person, yeah, that blood has to go somewhere. Okay, but they did it in a shower, so aren't they rinsing everything down the drain? Right, but wouldn't there be remnants left in that shower drain and in those pipes? Probably. And there was nothing. Yeah, so if they were able to scrape, like pull up stuff out of the drain and then test it, yeah. I'm assuming. And they found no no residue, no nothing. Right. Uh, this is wild. This I, is the part yeah. that gets me, guys. It really does. So they said that Melanie and her accomplice scrubbed the shower and bathroom walls, leaving absolutely no trace of biological matter, except for getting to clean the bottom of her shoes. But why would she wear shoes? Why would anybody wear shoes while they're cutting up a body in a shower? You would do that naked, I would uh, think. I don't. I'd do it in a hazmat suit. Yeah, but then I'd that's wear, one more piece I'd wear of evidence. Rain gear, and then I'd dump it. I'd, oh, I'd burn it. Okay. Well, I'm thinking there's that's one more thing to dump. 
That's one more piece of evidence to have. Okay. If you're naked, you just rinse it all off of you. Okay, hypothetically, you want to know how I would do it? Yes. If I were going to try and do this? Yes, tell me. Okay, plastic sheets in the shower. So the only thing left is the shower pan. Mm-hmm. In a very undesirable area hotel room. Okay, I'm sure this is happening. But then you'd have to bring the body. Right? Mm-hmm. You'd have to bring the unconscious body. That's just not feasible. Yeah. Even with an accomplice. So, I mean, they'd have to do it basically in their own house where he was out. Right. Because they would have to move his body. Yeah. Well, I know. She's a good cleaner. Melanie then picked up her boys around 5.30 p.m. and drove them to her parents' home, which was about an hour south. And the boys would spend the next few days there. And she was sane. Didn't seem to be anything wrong yeah, with her. Yeah, she was completely normal. After I mean, as normal as you Allegedly can cutting up her husband. Allegedly. She hmm. returned back to Woodbridge and rented a room at a nearby motel. All right. Later that night, Melanie and or her accomplice removed both the Easy Pass transponders from the windshields of her black Pathfinder and Bill's blue Nissan Maxima, hiding them so they would not register any hits that night and show up on their monthly statement. Oh, So New Jersey is all toll roads, really. Yeah, Mm -hmm. the the New Jersey turnpike. Around 11 p.m., Melanie drove Bill's car 105 miles south to Atlantic City, followed by her accomplice in her Pathfinder. Her plan was to leave Bill's car in the parking lot of the seedy Flamingo Motel so it would look like he had gone to Atlantic City to gamble after their fight and then disappeared. Hmm. At 12.41 a.m., Friday, April 30th, the time-lapse surveillance camera in the parking lot of the motel catches Bill's Maxima in the parking lot. Several minutes later, a dark-colored SUV, possibly Melanie's Pathfinder, pulls up alongside and stops long enough for someone to get in and pull away. There it is. But this is a time-lapse surveillance camera. This isn't video. Okay. So it's pictures that they take every few seconds, right? Okay. Okay. Because the footage is so grainy, it cannot be proven whether or not this is Melanie's Black Pathfinder. And if it's the same person getting out of the Maxima and into the SUV. You just can't tell. Melanie and her accomplice drive back to Woodbridge. The next day, Melanie obtained the temporary restraining order. At 12.54 a.m. on Sunday morning, Melanie's Easy Pass transponder registered a hit at a toll booth on the Atlantic City Expressway. It is believed that Melanie drove there with her father and planted the vial of chloral hydrate and a syringe in Bill's car, trying to make him look like a drug user, which is ridiculous to me. Yeah. I've never heard of people having a drug addiction to chloral hydrate or to Mickey's. No. <laughs> it's just so weird. And put Bill's Blackberry and computer in the trunk of his car, which would explain why 16 minutes after the Easy Pass was registered, the McGuire's landline received a one-minute unanswered phone call from Bill's cell phone. But Melanie supposedly, or her accomplice supposedly, had that cell phone. Gotcha. 
Okay. Are you staying with me, babe? Yeah. All right. It's a lot. Around 10 a.m. that same day, Melanie checked out of her hotel and went back home. The next seven and a half hours, her movements are unaccounted for. It is believed during this time that that is when Melanie began putting Bill's body in the three separate suitcases and re-cleaned the bathroom. At 5 p.m., it is believed that Melanie left the apartment and drove down to her parents' home. Her Easy Pass transponder registered hits on three different toll plazas, the last being Barnegat Toll Plaza at 6.23 p.m. Gotcha. The next day, Monday, May 3rd, she drove back to Woodbridge with the boys and dropped them off at preschool. It is then theorized that she went back to the apartment to continue cleaning and to make the final arrangements to dispose of Bill's body. Later that day, she met her parents at a prearranged meeting spot to hand over the boys who would spend the night in Barnegat. Melanie returned home and loaded the suitcases in her Pathfinder. This girl has done so much driving in the last few days. Uh, she's she's got to be spending exhausted, tons right? of money. Yeah, exhausted and is spending ton of, tons of money in gas. A lot of gas money. Why well, it was cheaper. I wouldn't do this just because I wouldn't want to pay for the gas. I don't even like driving across town because then I know I'm going to use gas. Okay, here's my hypothetical <laughs> what? question. If okay, she what? wanted to divorce him, and it sounds like he would be willing to do that, hmm. why kill him? Why not just divorce him? I'll tell you. I'll right? tell you what they believe the motive is. Okay. Yeah. Right. Around 8 p.m., Melanie drove 330 miles south to Chesapeake Bay. Around midnight, she was at the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. Melanie paid the toll and drove on to the bridge. Okay, they don't know for sure if she paid this toll because this would have been paid in cash. This did not register on her easy pass because that was just for New Jersey. Gotcha. She pulled over into the first layby and stopped. Melanie got out of the Pathfinder and dropped the three suitcases 75 feet below into the Chesapeake Bay, got in her car, and had to drive almost the entire length of the bridge tunnel before she could turn around. Melanie then drove six hours back to New Jersey. Oh, man. That I'm is, exhausted. I know. That is tiring. Yeah. The first suitcase being found on Wednesday, May 5th. Okay, here we go. This is what they believe the motive is. Assets and not wanting to go through a long, drawn-out divorce and custody battle. She also wanted to begin a life with Dr. Bradley. The murder was a reaction to buying the house that would tie Melanie to Bill for the next 30 years. Right. Okay, but what about the kids? The kids are a tie, too. She's always going to be tied to Bill because of those children. Right. Yeah. That, that's what I don't mm -hmm. understand. Like, okay, she gets rid of him, but you still have all this other stuff. And how? Oh, whatever. Well, and here's the thing. She was an adulterer. She was banging Dr. Brad. Right. But, so what's she upset about? Well, Bill also slept with a few people during their marriage. Well, who doesn't? Right. So he was an adulterer, too. I don't know if she knew about his extracurricular affairs. I know he didn't know about hers. Because I think if he would have found out that she was sleeping with somebody else, 
He would have made a huge deal about it and told everybody. I don't think he would have bought a house. And he would not have bought a house with her. No. No, absolutely not. No. no way. Especially if he was so obsessed with getting the house because in his mind that would create the perfect family, family and marriage mm-hmm. and situation. So I agree that there's a lot of circumstantial evidence and the easy past timelines are pretty compelling. But let's talk about why I'm not 100% sold on the prosecution's theory. Oh, good. For what should have been such a gory crime scene, where is the forensic evidence? There was zero blood or any tissue found in the drains or pipes, nothing in the vents or in the grout, no saw marks on the shower stall or even in the bathtub. And where are those blood-soaked drop cloths? Where are Bill's clothes? He would have been bleeding from the gunshot wounds, but he was able to be pulled up those stairs and zero blood is found on those stairs. That's a good point. Where is the couch that he was supposedly shot on? Where's the gunpowder residue? Where's the other two bullets? Because only two bullets were found in his body and he was shot possibly three to four times. The green fibers that were found wrapped around the head of the bullet was not a match to any of the McGuire's furniture. Even if it's a throw pillow, it's the same type of fibers and upholstery fabric as that of a couch. Hmm. Melanie was five foot four inches and 110 pounds. She could not have done this by herself. Not very easily, no. No, not in eight hours. Hmm. I really don't think that she could have done this by herself. So those are my questions. Do you think it's possible that she did do this in another location and it wasn't at the house? Yes. Ding, ding, ding. I mean, that's my theory. Yes, absolutely. Because then you don't have to clean the bathroom. Not as much anyway. anyway. Right. Okay, so I'm going to get into that too. The defense believes that Bill was murdered for gambling debts and that the murder could be tied to another murder in Atlantic City over gambling debts. So basically the mob. Yeah, but why would they kill you if you owe them a bunch of money? You're not going to be able to pay it back. So that's kind of odd. Exactly. And that was never proven. And Bill didn't have any debts or owe anyone money. Not that they could find that, at least. Like, there was no record of that. And he usually made money gambling. He was actually really good at gambling. Oh, I'm not. So he made decent money doing that. He made extra money for them throughout the year by gambling. Oh, good for him. The defense also brought up Melanie's story of driving to Atlantic City to look for Bill on the evening of April 30th. She says she somehow found his car in a random casino parking lot, moved his car to the Flamingo Motel parking lot in the seedier area of town, But then she says that she forgot where she parked her Pathfinder (laughs) and had to take a cab home. What? Remembered where she had parked it the next day and then took another cab to Atlantic City, found her Pathfinder, and drove home to Woodbridge. The problem with Melanie's story was that there were no records of these trips with any cab company. And it's 100 miles each way. Right. That's quite a cab ride. That's an expensive cab ride. Right? I mean, normally you're going a a couple miles, maybe. If Melanie did not have an accomplice who drove her Pathfinder and there's no taxi record putting her in a cab, then how did she get home? Right. The human sawdust in the car and Melanie admitting to moving that car out of spite is very compelling. 
if she was dumb enough to wear the same shoes. Yeah. Or her accomplice. And why would you buy a gun only two days before killing your husband? But Melanie states that she bought the gun because Bill kept nagging at her about purchasing the firearm for weeks since they were hoping to move to a more rural area in New Jersey and needed the protection. It was just a coincidence that she bought the gun two days before, and it was even more of a coincidence that the gun was missing. They never found this gun. It's in the bay. I bet you're right. Just pitch everything. If all of this happened, Melanie would be the unluckiest person in the entire world world, if she didn't do this. Right. She has very poor timing. If Melanie and an accomplice murdered Bill, I think it may have started in that apartment, but that's not where he was murdered or dismembered. Hmm. But where? Where could this have happened? That's a good And question. he was passed out for a really long time. Because his underwear were soiled. Oh. So he was in that position for a really long time. So almost like he was held against his will kind of thing, I think he was asleep. Oh. I think he was unconscious for a very long time. Gotcha. So basically the body self-soiled itself. And he could have been moved during that time. Gotcha. The prosecution in closing arguments reminded the jury that they did not have to believe that the murder and dismemberment took place in the apartment to convict her, which was very smart. Okay. I would have needed to be reminded of that if I was on a jury, because that's what I would be thinking is like, this didn't happen here. The trial lasted over six weeks with 81 witnesses. On Monday, April 23rd, after four days of jury deliberation, nine women and three men found Melanie McGuire guilty of murdering her husband, Bill McGuire. She was given the maximum sentence of life in prison. She will be eligible for parole under New Jersey law at 101 years old. She might make it. So, yeah, you never know. Wow. Do you have any questions? I know this is really, really long. You usually have the questions that our listeners have. So if you have any questions, could you let me know? (laughs) (sighs) There's a lot of details. Oh, gosh, you guys, so much detail in this. Yeah, Um, that's why I read the book two times. All right, well, Bill and Melanie's sons were raised by Bill's older sister. See, that's what happened. Always the kids end up, yeah, the kids suffer. Mm-hmm. Not that, I mean, not that his older sister wasn't a fine parent type person, but I Yes, mean, I guess they turned out very good boys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, they're men now. Well, sure. Yeah. I have so many unanswered questions, but my biggest question is what happened to Bill's wallet? It was found in the second storage unit with his identification, credit cards, and money. If he was headed to Atlantic City to stay and gamble, Wouldn't he have needed his wallet? He would need everything. So that kind of summed it up for me, that he never left to go to Atlantic City. Yeah, there was no intention of that. No, and that he was not killed by the mob or for gambling debts. No. Because he didn't have any of his stuff with him. So it had to have been somebody close to him. He wouldn't have gambling debt because he still had resources. And yeah. he was able to buy a house and yes, do all these things. Yes, a half a million things. dollar house. Yeah, someone who's like completely hit rock bottom 
Anne owes the mob tens of thousands of dollars that they can't pay back. They usually their life is complete crap at that point. And they just lost their job, you know, and they're begging the mob to give them more time, right? But that's mm-hmm. not his situation. So Right. Yeah. Okay, and the blanket. The blanket that was wrapped around his head was a blanket that could be found at the doctor's office. They were the same blankets that were at the doctor's office. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but when when did she discharge or somebody discharge the firearm into him? The night. Where? I mean, it would be the question. Right. Where? They're saying it happened at the home. It didn't happen at the medical office. Probably not. Probably not. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. think so. So it would be somebody who could take those home, which would be her, because she also was packing furniture in those blankets when yeah. she was moving out of the townhouse. Huh. Oh, goodness gracious. Yeah. Well, there are some very impressive people with serious degrees who believe that Melanie was wrongly convicted of Bill's murder. And these are the four key reasons as to why. Number one, the land and grooves inside the barrel of the gun that shot Bill left six distinct grooves on the wad cutter bullet. According to the manufacturer's site for Melanie's purchase gun, there would only have been five grooves. But after this case... On the website, it was changed to five or six grooves. Huh. Mm Mm-hmm. The forensic analyst who processed the garbage bags admitted on the stand that he did not do every test possible and that it was just his expert opinion. According to his own data, it was all over the place and that the chemical compound of the bags did not match exactly. Okay. Number three, there had to be animal hair in the area that the dismemberment took place. The McGuire's never had pets, and there was no connection to that pet hair. And there was a few strands of different types of animal hair found in those bags with Bill's body. Huh. So how did animal hair get in there? It had to be where he was dismembered. Yeah. Number four, that apartment or townhouse was searched four to five times. The bathroom tile and shower were removed, and blood was never found, nor was any trace of biological material. So where is the crime scene? Yeah, I'm thinking not at the house. Mm -hmm. So how did they get him, or how did she get him to be passed out? Well, she got him to be passed out with the Mickey, the chloral hydrate, But then she and more than likely an accomplice had to get him out of the house and then take him somewhere and then do the dirty work. But then there's two boys. There's two boys upstairs. Who's taking care of the boys while she's dismembering a body with her accomplice at another location? Yeah. Unless they took the boys with them. No. But that is horrific parenting. That's not good. No. All right, you ready for a fun fact? Oh, gosh, yeah. Okay. During the state's closing arguments to the jury, they suggested that Melanie's parents were her accomplices. What? Now, her parents were investigated, but there was no evidence that they were involved. But the prosecution definitely threw them under the bus. Mm Mm-hmm. Huh. And her parents are older, and they were kind of little people. Little people. Big world. <laughs> so, I mean, they were petite like she was. Right. Well, she was 5'4". It wasn't like she was 4'12". I know, but I mean, she wasn't 
this like weightlifter, like someone who could lift a car like me. Right. She That's was teeny true. compared like, to me. Six I mean, three, like two seventy. She was petite. Stocky. Well, that's not stocky. Could you pull a 200-pound man up a flight of stairs, dead weight, um, and if, not get blood everywhere? If I had to. You think you it could? It would be tough. I couldn't. My carpal tunnel wouldn't let me get a good grip. If I tied him to like a board and then drug the board up the stairs, then I could do it. Oh, okay. Or like a wench? Winch. A winch? W- wench is a, a, <laughs> a woman you pick up in a... A winch. A, a bar in medieval times. Okay. Well, I'm tired. <laughs> hey, winch. Shush. Yes, I'd winch winch him up the stairs. Yeah, it's mm. possible, but that, that'd be tough. Yeah. Oh, mm. This one's rough, right? Yeah. I mean, not rough. I mean, it's, it's gory and there's so many questions <sighs> and they'll never know exactly what happened to Bill. And Prop- I feel so bad for Bill and poor his Bill. family and the children. Oh my gosh, this poor guy. Yeah. He was so happy. He had just bought his dream home and he was buying this home not only for himself but for his kids. Yeah. And possibly for this woman who was cheating on him with a Dr. Brad for 3 years. Uh I'm so sick <sighs> of people. <laughs> I'm so sick of these kind of things. Yeah. Oh, goodness gracious. There is a Lifetime movie called Suitcase Killer, the Melanie McGuire story on Lifetime, and it came out just a couple months ago. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. So, Daniel, what did you think of my case? That had a little bit of everything in it. It really did. Mm Mm-hmm. Sex, intrigue. Yeah. Dismemberment, water. Water. Fishing. Oral aerobics. I mean, we had all the good stuff. New Jersey. Joyzy. The suitcase killer. The suitcase killer. I bet Kenneth Cole was very excited. Oh, gosh, yeah. About the use uh, of his... um, I don't think he's alive. Marshall's suitcases. Yeah, I don't think that is a... Kenneth Cole still a person? Is he long since gone? I have no idea. Well, let's do some Patreon shout outs, huh? Okay. Go for it, babe. All right, I want to shout out some of our executive producers of our show who have absolutely no say <laughs> at all in the show. <laughs> uh, Raquel S., thank you so much. Thanks, we Raquel. Really appreciate it. You're so supportive. Got Rebecca C. Aw, thanks, Rebecca. And Julie M. Julie without an E. I like that. Yeah, I like that. It's a little yeah, bit different, huh? I know. I do like that. And Gina V. Aw, thanks, Gina. Not to be confused with Gina. <laughs> Name's Gina. No, it's Gina. It's, it's a very beautiful it's name. It's Gina. Thank you, Beautiful Gina. name for a beautiful woman. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for helping to support our show. We really, really appreciate We're it. We're trying. It's mm-hmm. cracks of time, but, you know, yeah. what are you going to do? If you are enjoying our show... And you'd like to rate and review us, please go to Apple Podcasts and do that. It really helps us out. Um, If you've done that or you're like us in Generation Xers and you don't like to review things, how about shout us out on Instagram? Sure. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Then we look really cool. It means something. Word of mouth is huge for podcasts. So 
if you could just kind of spread the love. We are just so excited to see where this is going to go. Um, we're having the best time getting to know all of you. Yeah. So thank you for sticking with us and thank you for listening. Yeah, we really hope you guys enjoyed this crazy thing that my lovely wife dug up. <laughs> this crazy story that Melissa fished out. Actually, it was sent to me by oh, um, someone on Instagram. And I, I'm so sorry. I forgot to write down who sent the story to me. If you did, can yeah. you send me a message on Instagram and yeah. then I'll shout you out on Instagram? Yeah. This was a great story and a great find. And I had heard this like a long time ago. So it was really fun to dig into it, even though I'm leaving with more questions than answers. But thank you so much. And if any of you have any recommendations on cases, small cases, give me the cases that nobody's doing because those are the ones that I really, really enjoy doing. Yeah. And everyone's story deserves to be heard That's and true. told. That's true. With respect. Sometimes we joke, but it is very serious. It is very serious. So thank you so much for listening and be careful. For marriage is a life sentence. And divorce is always the better option. Bye. Bye. Bye.